Hey everybody, you're probably noticing a funny looking episode in your movie crush feed right now. And that's because uh, we have a new show on our network. Uh, old pal, the movie crush now, Minnie Driver, has her own show uh, that we did talk about a little bit on her episode with me. It's called Mini Questions. And uh, it's great. It's an interview show where she asks uh, a variety of different guests um, seven different questions. Sometimes all the questions make it into the final episode. Sometimes they don't. Uh, but she was kind enough to have me on as one of her first couple of episodes. And they uh, asked me, hey, what do you think about dropping that episode in the Movie Crush feed uh, since she was on your show and she's beloved? And I said, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. So I uh, just wanted to record a quick intro here for that and why you're seeing this here. Uh, and it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I uh, She has this weird magic where she gets you to open up about things you didn't know you were going to open up about. Very great, great interviewer and host and a warm, lovely human being. And uh, she's just great. So uh, here we go with my episode with Minnie Driver on her own show, Mini Questions, a show that you can get and subscribe to on the iHeartRadio app or iTunes or, you know, what they all say, wherever you get your favorite podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Chuck, is it really true that your podcast has been downloaded a billion times? It's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my effing goodness. I just I know. It's crazy. It's it's amazing. It it's it really so is weird. Cool because it's that show. It's not a show about like how to boil an egg. It's a show right. about <laughs> stuff that is really will help and change people. Like it that's extremely edifying and I'm I think I'm so. so in awe of that. Yeah. About curiosity and uh Yeah. Yeah, it feels good. It's it's weird. And trust me, I told you I wake up wake up every day. Like, what would I be doing? I was a writer, so I'd probably be writing pamphlets for cell phone companies or something. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I'm very glad you're not. I'm very glad you're doing Me medicine. too. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver, and welcome to the Mini Questions. Growing up, my family always had the radio on. I loved the ritual of listening to shows like Desert Island Discs on a Sunday morning and hearing interesting people answer the same set of questions. Later... Whenever I got my copy of Vanity Fair back when you actually bought hard copies of magazines, I would always turn to the back page first and read their version of Proust's questionnaire. I think it's the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make interesting observations about the way we're the same and different. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder, what if these questions were just the jumping off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines? I think of this show as a mini archive, no pun intended, although it's sort of unavoidable, where I invite you to observe how these trailblazers overlap and also where they don't. So I took the format of Proust's questionnaire and adapted what I think are seven of the most important questions you could ever ask someone. They are... When and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that has grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of remarkable people that I am honoured and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. 
You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've selected the ones that felt closest to their experience or were the most surprising or the ones that provided the most fertile ground to connect. And today, we're talking to Chuck Bryant. With his co-host, Chuck, is the host of the podcast, Stuff You Should Know, which if you haven't listened to this, right after you listen to me, you need to go and listen. He's also got another podcast called Movie Crush, if you're a movie buff, which I am. He's a down-to-earth genius, and he's talking to me right now. Chuck, I have so many more questions for you than the seven questions that I'm allowed because (laughs) I'm fascinated about the trajectory to the podcast that you do so successfully with Josh Clark. I'm mad about stuff you should know. And I was going to say, did you know a lot of this stuff before? Oh, no. I mean, it's uh, we very much kind of fell into it. And and I'm very fortunate. Like, I feel like we sort of bought a small house in a great neighborhood years ago, almost 14 years ago when podcasting was in its infancy. And the industry kind of just grew up around us. And I wake up every day and say thank you for this weird life that I kind of wandered into. I'm a huge fan. The Mexican wrestling episode is one of my favorites because I thought it was just large men and masks. I didn't know anything about the history of the masks and it's so beautiful and amazing and weird. And anyway, your podcast is a mitzvah for all of us. So my first question, where and when were you happiest? Well, I mean, do people cheat and sort of dabble in in multiple answers? <laughs> you know what? I don't know if that's cheating. I think I would hope that you've been happy more than once, but no, do feel free to do a appetizer, main course and dessert if you fancy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because when I think about when I've been happiest, there are my college years when I was living in Athens, Georgia for six years. And especially as I approached 50 years old, looking back on the time when responsibility was nil and I was waiting tables and felt like I was making all the money in the world, you know, living cheaply and just, you know, these are still my friends that I have today. My, like my closest friends are from those years and we all live within two or three miles of each other here in Atlanta. So I think about those years, but I think when am I happiest in the present tense, I sort of, I guess would like to set a little scene, which is I'm in my sunroom in my home and it's very lovely. Lots of windows. Lots of sun. Lots of sun. It's early evening. I've got a glass of wine. My two dogs and two cats are in there. My wife is in the fat chair reading a home design magazine. Michael Kiwanuka is playing on the radio. And I'm playing with my daughter. I'm, I'm building something with her, like Legos or Magnetiles. That's when I'm happiest now. Those are the best moments. Do you think that your awareness of when you're happy Do you think that has a sort of a knock-on effect to the rest of your life? That awareness of being able to say, it's in my sunroom, it's playing magnetiles with my little daughter, knowing my wife is close. Do you think that that reminds us to absorb it where it may not be so, so obvious? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something I have to work on. In the obvious moments, I very much am in that moment like in the sunroom, you know, especially being an older father to a younger child, like really recognizing the importance of every day like that, because you know how it is. They get older and you lose those moments. They get older quick. 
I try not to dwell on that because it just makes me cry every time. So I try to really be in those moments, sort of step back and say like, all right, you're having one of those life moments, like drink it in, man. But it's something I have to work on. Yeah. I mean, I think we all do. I think we all do. What is the quality that you least like about yourself? Well, I mean, this is pretty revealing stuff here. (laughs) It's like (laughs) therapy territory a bit. (laughs) I think my reticence to change things about myself that I know for a fact would improve myself. Getting kind of stuck and letting myself up too easily, giving myself permission to not be the best me too easily. I'm too easy on myself. I think that's probably the best way to sum it up. I love that most people are like, I'm too hard on myself. You're like, I'm way too easy on myself. I am way too easy on myself. I really am to my own detriment. Part of it is procrastination. Like, yeah, I'll work on that tomorrow. Like I I need to drop some weight, but do I today? (laughs) Not today. Tomorrow and then the next day and the next day. So you know, taking the easier path, I can be a bit lazy sometimes in, in a lot of ways, but certainly in ways of self-improvement. I get so mad at myself that I don't hold myself more accountable, especially now with a young daughter, like just, you know, how they do. They're soaking it all in. They're watching everything you do. I know. They forever change us, obviously, our children. What we forget is that they continue to forever change us because we are always being reflected back. And we have this little person, you know, when they say their first cuss word that they heard you say only yesterday. Right. It's quite sobering to know that they are these little sponges. And I can't imagine that my 12-year-old will ever stop tacitly making me modify my own behavior because I see him pick up on everything that I do. Is that something that you felt like you needed a lot of work to be the best example? Or were you pretty squared away and it's just little things here and there? You know what? I was really ready to be a parent and I have a very flexible, but just available view of parenting. I feel like 90% of parenting is bearing witness. Mm -hmm. Why? It's like, mommy, watch this. Just watch them. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. But I've noticed the things that he's picked up on, whether it's my anxiety or some quick fire temper stuff that I go, oh, shit. Yeah. I have to really look <laughs> at that because I'm quite literally teaching him that this is a sanctioned basic architecture and we're all faulted humans, but it, it's good to be aware of that stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, it can be so great when you see yourself in your child or you see your partner in your child, but it can also be the scariest thing. Terrifying. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And then you see the generational uh-huh. passing on. It's like, <laughs> whoa, somebody stopped this train. This is nuts. Like, But you can't do that though. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Does it not? Dang it. <laughs> I think it, you know, it all depends on your modeling that you got growing up too. And without getting too much into the weeds on that, I, I didn't have some of the best modeling growing up with my parents in, in a lot of ways. So the kid either wants to grow up and do things completely different or the kid grows up and finds himself falling into those same traps that your parents were in. You got a choice to make. That is it. You either grow up and you repeat or you grow up and you change because you don't want to repeat and you're aware of that. You're right. It's a choice. It's a fork in the road. 
I think I probably do a bit of both. I think maybe everybody, if you're lucky, you do a bit of both as opposed to just repeating. My next question is, what relationship, either real or fictionalized, defines love for you? Yeah, this is a three-way relationship with my wife, Emily, and my daughter, Ruby. She's adopted, and there's always just some crazy story about that actual process. Ours is no different. It's never easy. It's always weird. But we had trouble getting pregnant for years and then went to plan B, and I wasn't a hundred percent down with plan B. I, I kind of thought, well, you know, if it's not going to happen for us, maybe we have a life where we don't have a kid at all. And we just can pick up and travel whenever we want and are beholden to no one but ourselves. And that kind of appealed to me a little bit for a minute. And then I got on board and it all came together very fast. And, you know, now I can't envision my life any other way. Like if I could go back and have a biological child, there's just no way I would do it because our life went in this direction. I can't imagine being more connected to a biological child than I am with Ruby. And you know, as a parent, it's the purest, purest form of love there is. There's no strings attached. It's not transactional. It's unconditional. It'll get more complicated as she gets older. But those first few years, it's just that purity of love is very instructive and teaches me a lot about life. Little five-year-old teaching me about life. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't it amazing for that to become something that defines love for you when in concept it was something that you couldn't even really get your head around? Yeah. The paradigm of our hearts is extraordinary and myriad and so beautiful. I love that you could go from this idea of, oh, I don't even know if I want to adopt and maybe we're meant to just have this life of just me and my wife. And now you're in this place where you simply cannot imagine your life without your little girl. I love the flexibility of our hearts and the complete unquantifiable nature of them. They're just sort of unbridled in their space and depth. It's such an exciting thing to remember. Yeah. And, and the heart, like when I say you have to have the, the open heart for that, it it doesn't even have to be the castle door completely open. Like you just have to provide the smallest opening sometimes. Oh, oh, that's a really good point. And they can worm anything. Anyone can worm their way in and take residence there. <laughs> That's a really good point. You don't have to pull the drawbridge all the way up. You can just have it a little bit up and that's going to have this massive effect. Yeah. The other leg to the tripod that is my life is my wife, Emily, and I married my best friend and like, I highly recommend it. I agree. It's a good thing to do. We go at it too and fight like cats and dogs. It's not uh, all wine and roses or anything, but you know, we always make up. Uh, I think you've, sometimes you just got to yell at somebody. <laughs> oh, yeah. That should be an, ooh, I want to yell at somebody. I want to really yell at somebody. You have to yell at someone. You have to. With somebody who loves me, though. That's the important part. <laughs> With somebody who loves me. And that was the thing, like I said, I didn't have the greatest modeling. A lot of yelling and fighting in my house. And the difference is like, I never really saw my parents make up. Hmm. It was just a long fight. So... We always make a big point to like make up and let her see that and tell her like, hey, listen, mommy and daddy fight sometimes, but we're always going to come back together. 
you know, sometimes it's the next day. Uh, we, we never subscribe to the don't go to bed mad. Like No, sometimes you can go to bed mad. Oh, yeah, no. I'm a big advocate of going to bed mad. There's nothing like a really bad night's sleep to <laughs> sleeping on it, waking up feeling shitty and then going, you know what? I really don't want to feel like this anymore. Like I said, we, you know, we go at it like cats and dogs sometimes. But, you know, when I'm traveling for work, I'm gone for a day and I miss them both terribly. You know, I, I can still have some wonderful experiences alone. Um, sometimes when we do live shows on tours and stuff, I'll, I'll have some really great nights exploring a town by myself. I'll have so much fun. But at some point, inevitably, I think, oh, I wish they were here with me. But with COVID lockdown, too, it's like this is when everyone's medal is tested. 100%. As far as who they're partnering with and who they're rooting down with. And uh, we, we've had a pretty good time. Yeah, I got to say, I love him more now, having been through this my partner and all of this. I really do. It's interesting how you'd think you'd want to get away from people and you do, but in not being able to get away from them, the other answer is to sort of go deeper and to laugh more. We've laughed an enormous amount, like sometimes slightly hysterically, but yeah. um, <laughs> but always laughing. <laughs> what question would you most like answered? I'm sure that people tend to go toward the metaphysical, the, you know, are we alone in the universe type of stuff. I kind of wish I could understand true goodness and selflessness. I said I let myself up too easily. I'm also very hard on myself mentally as far as like, oh, I'm so selfish and, and I hate it when I do selfish things. But I know people that just seem like pure goodness and pure selflessness. I'd very much like to understand the human brain more when it comes to how much of that is learned. I obsess about nature and nurture as an adoptive parent. Mm -hmm. And I also am equally fascinated by true evil as well as true goodness. And I think just sort of understanding the, the combination of nature and nurture that make up personality and goodness and badness. Would you like that answered because you'd like to know how to corral that in yourself more or just because you are clearly a person who is interested in the world around you and knowing things and disseminating that information to others so that if you could say what goodness was, then you could more easily understand what evil was. I think both. Boy, that's a great question. Both. I would use it for self-improvement. And also with Stuff You Should Know, we've done so much on the human brain and we know so much more now than we ever have, but it's still such a mystery what is going on up there in that weird looking clod of neurons that sits within our skull. Like there's so much mystery there. And, you know, we've done episodes on sociopathy and true crime stuff, like the worst of the worst. There's so much research now on literal like brain injury early on and how that can take someone down a bad path. And I, and I look at that stuff and it's just fascinating to me. And there is no good without evil and evil without good. So I think it's like understanding the human brain and what uh, nature-wise brings us in a certain direction and how much nurture can can say no. And how much nurture could maybe heal and, and change it back. For sure. What do you think about nature and nurture? God, it was one of my four o'clock in the morning thoughts this particular morning. I mean, as I lay there wondering about what on earth was going to happen with everything, like you do these days. So when I had my little tiny baby, I was a single mom 
And I was so scared after the first couple of weeks of being alone with him at night because mm-hmm. I was like, I am an idiot. I have made so many mistakes in my life. Who has entrusted this tiny being to my care? And what if something happens and I don't know what to do? So I called a friend of mine and she went, oh, you've got to call my mate Stella. She'll come around and she'll be a night nurse with you. She'll be there with you. And you can talk to her. So began just the happiest two weeks of of my life, apart from having this new tiny baby. There was this amazing woman from the north of England who would just come and she'd sit on my sofa while I was feeding the baby in the middle of the night. And she'd just chat to me about children and babies and childcare and everything that she knew. And I would just ask her endless questions in the fog of this middle of the night, heavy milk and two women sharing I suppose like it was an an ancient transaction. And one of the things that I asked her was, I was like, in all these babies that you've come across, can you tell me about nature and nurture and like these babies that you've seen and you've spent time with and then who they grow up to be? And she said, I've got to tell you, beyond just like the physical things which you you can't really get away from, like colic, a baby has colic. Some babies just get colic. It doesn't matter what the mother eats and then feeds the baby. It just happens. But she's like, you see that these beings, they come in with a a certain amount that is just completely and utterly them. And she said, and then you watch how the parenting either frames that Mm -hmm. and holds it in a, a place that it can kind of grow, or they suffocate it, or they don't really put it on any kind of pedestal at all. And so it kind of grows wild. And she said she was always fascinated by that fundamental kind of nugget of that person. I've watched with my own son, because he was my only science mm-hmm. test with this. Right. Yeah. And I, I was always aware of that. I always saw from the very beginning who this person was. Yeah. And I've thought about in the moments in our life together, whether I'm lifting that up, whether I'm suffocating it, am I damaging it? Do I need to censure it? How am I framing it? Because as his custodian, that's my job. But I think nurture is huge, but you have to honor and respect that nature. As the nurturer, you have to have a modicum of inquiry into what that nature is before you can start nurturing. Yeah, it's so fascinating. My daughter has a very good heart. And that is something that you can't, I don't think, I mean, maybe you can. In our experience, we did not nurture that into her. I mean, we've tried, like you said, we've tried to reinforce that and build it up, but she just has a good heart. She's a sweet kid and you see it in her relationships with her little friends and how she plays. And when you see a kid that (laughs) is not like that, it makes me sort of feel bad for that kid and think like that kid's going to struggle in life. Kids who struggle with their instinct being to like push another kid or to help another kid up, you know, sometimes it's as simple as that. What a gift with, with that night nurse. Wow. That's amazing. Those are the heroes that like, (laughs) when you hear about a person like that, it's, it almost feels like magic. Oh, she was amazing. She taught me so much. That was a core moment in my life. I mean, as a person and as a new mother, it felt pretty ancient because you realize that women have been doing that forever and ever and ever. That has existed in in our culture, an elder woman teaching another woman because, you know, 
Most, you know, girls can get pregnant, but you're not also instilled that when you get pregnant, you don't suddenly have this giant download of what you're meant to do with the baby. You have, don't have a clue. I love doing that for my friends of passing on what was passed on to me. This might be my favorite question because I love food, but what would be your last meal? Well, I'm going to cheat big time on this one. <laughs> Are you? I am, because I'm going to set up something that's not real, that's magic, which is, well, I'm going to set up a scene. It, it's not just a meal. It is all of my friends and family together at a big party, a big potluck. And all of my favorite foods are at the potluck. And the magic in the big cheat is that I don't get full. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because feeling full is the worst. There's self-loathing involved. It's like, ugh, I feel full. I ate the wrong things. It's just the worst feeling. So in this magic world, all of my favorite foods are in this big spread and I don't get full. So there's fried chicken and there's mashed potatoes. I'm a boy from the American South. So there's cornbread, there's mac and cheese, but there's also Chinese food and Korean spare ribs and <laughs> tandoori chicken and garlic naan. I want to come to this party. <laughs> and hot fudge sundaes oh, and yum. key lime pie and birthday cake. It's all there and I can have as much of it as I want and, and I don't feel gross afterwards. <laughs> it's so funny how something that we do every single day we eat food. We eat food for fuel. It becomes mythic as well. There are these mythic meals, yeah. meals that we've had with friends when we visited other countries, places there. The last meal that I had with my grandmother. It's so funny how magical food is, but also how we're scared of it and we let ourselves be punished by it. So many people seem to have such a difficult relationship with. I mean, I think loads of people do, whether it's that they don't eat enough or they eat too much or they they punish themselves for wanting to eat delicious food. It's very complicated. There's a lot to people in their relationships with food. I think if there's no magic involved and it's just literally what you want your last meal to be, it would be a big Southern spread of, of fried chicken, mashed potatoes, my grandmother's biscuits, collard greens, mac and cheese, banana pudding, yeah. that kind of thing. Banana pudding. <laughs> mm. I love that. Do you eat Southern food? Have you had much experience with that? I've eaten Southern food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Southern food. I'm very suspicious. Is this an American thing or is I only had it in the South at Thanksgiving? This sort of green jelly. It's like jello, but it's called a salad. But it's not a salad. It's green, <laughs> but that's where the likeness to salad ends. It's jello with some sort of weird savory dressing on it. And I've been confused by it for a long time. And perhaps you can explain it to me. I can't. God dang. Is that a Southern food? I don't think so. I know what you're talking about. You do? Maybe, maybe it is a Southern food. What is it called? I don't know. <laughs> but I love Southern food. Also, my mother always used to say that if you deep fried your elbow, it would taste good. True. Which I also agree with. <laughs> so deep fried anything is pretty good by me. No, I know. And uh, oh boy, my family history of like cholesterol problems. My family was always from the deep South and... We all just grew up with fried food, like running through our veins. It's cultural though, isn't it? That's what you grew up with. It can still be delicious as well as, you know, torturously bad on one level. You can still enjoy it. My grandmother's the true old Southern grandma that would, the second you walk in the door, is just stuffing food down your throat <laughs> at every turn. I got some chicken. I made a baked pie. Like, have it. Have it all. Eat it, eat it, eat it. 
It's an expression of love. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And it's hard to untie that knot when it is bound up with all these beautiful things like love and generosity and nurturing. It's hard to then go, yeah, but some of those things are bad for me. It's 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 complicated. Well, but then, you know, so much about eating, like you said, is the experience that you're having with another human. It's experiential. You've painted a few pictures that for you, separating these things out is not necessarily the point. It's really about the tableau of experience. It's about the people that you're with. Your idea of happiness is to be with your family. In these questions that I'm asking about yourself, you're including all these other people, which is nice. I mean, without any training, I would definitely say you're not a sociopath. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Pisces. There's nothing more important to Pisces than that support group. I got to say I'm with you. I'm an Aquarian, but I'm a dog in Chinese astrology. So like, I just want my belly rubbed for people to be loyal. I'm a dog in, in Chinese astrology too. Are you? Yeah. And you want to hear something cool? I'll, I'll tell you the short version. One of my best friends, uh, Justin, is from London. We went to college together years ago and remained friends. His mother, Carrie, is very much into astrology and specifically does birth charts for people. And we got a Zoom meeting together with Carrie, and she did the birth chart for me and Emily and and Ruby as an adopted kid. And it was really, really cool. Like, she said some things that was just sort of mind-blowing that we were meant to all be together when she looks at our chart. It, it still gives me chills to think about this one part. She has this sort of posh accent. She said, Chuck, she said, you and Ruby have known each other for a very long time. And I was like, what do you mean? And then she started to get into some past life stuff. And she was like, I firmly believe that you guys knew each other before. And I was just like, you know, I started crying. And I'm, you know, I have chill bumps right now thinking about it. And I bought into all that. I'm usually not into the to that sort of metaphysical stuff. But I was like, I believe it. Great. Yeah, no, 100%. When it's really, really good. I always believe it. Yeah. Everything's going to work out for you. Great. I'm in. Ooh, this next guy, he might not be such a good guy. Yeah, shut up. Right. He's hot. <laughs> no. I mean, I'm very glad. That's really nice. I've never heard of actually having a chart cast for a family. That's really beautiful. Okay, so listen, my last question for you is, in your life, can you tell me what has grown out of a personal disaster? I hate to go back to it again, but the obvious thing is not being able to get pregnant. At the time, I guess that did feel like a disaster. It's really interesting because this is exactly it. It's like what you thought was the end of the world was actually the beginning of just another world. Exactly. And it came together very fast for us. Like I said, we took our time doing all the paperwork and all the sort of work that you have to do. But once we finally got that all together and submitted, I think it was 10 days later, we got the call. Like, we think we have a match. Good. <laughs> God, that is fast. Holy cow. It came together very fast. And one of the things that they talk about when you adopt is the three losses. There's a loss for you as parents to not have a biological child. There's the loss of the birth parents and especially the birth mom. And then there's the loss that your kid's going to have to deal with eventually. So they really talk to you about like those losses are there. Like you can't make them go away. You can't pretend they didn't happen. So you got to face those things head on. And to introduce the idea of adoption as they're growing up, it's hard. It was very hard for us to sort of first say those words like, hey, there's this thing. Uh, you're adopted and this, this is what that means. And 
you're three and you have no idea what this means yet, but we're just going to plant that little seed and uh, talk about it more and more as you get older. And those losses seem like a disaster at the time, Mm. very much a personal disaster that I can't even talk about it that much without like wanting to break down. No, I'm sure. I think it's so important to examine these things that we call the end of the world without saying that they weren't, because Mm -hmm. most often they are, but to really be able to look at and see the other things that grew out of that and how in our effort to make everything happy all the time, we sometimes forget that it's really good to experience those harder moments because they're vital. I mean, I have almost a clinical aversion to the bad things. <laughs> like that's how much I want things to always be great and okay and to be liked and uh, loved by everybody and to please everyone. But sometimes it's good to wallow in the misery just for a bit. I'm thinking about like heartbreaks growing up and sometimes you don't want to feel better right away. Sometimes you want to put on the Smiths and just sit in the dark for three days. <laughs> I think it's very important. I think it's very, very important to do exactly that. I think we live in a culture and a society in the West where we do everything to nullify pain when in actual fact it is, yeah, it is hard and it is awful, but it is also the most extraordinary teacher and the most fertile ground for growth. So while I wouldn't say I'm an advocate for pain, I'm very interested and respectful of it. And I try to teach my kid to not be scared of it. It is part of life. And even though all I want to do is cover him in cotton wool and make sure that he experiences nothing bad ever, Uh I actually know the better thing is to teach them how to handle the pain because it's unavoidable. Yeah. My wife is always really good about telling me and reminding me to reinforce with our daughter, like, feel your feelings. You got to feel the full range of those emotions. Whereas I would much more be prone to try and like, it's okay. You don't, you know, like, you don't need to cry. That's all right. Cause look, this is, this is actually great. You don't need to cry. <laughs> no, let them feel it. Yeah. And you know, Pollyanna doesn't get you anywhere. I, I would always rather know where I stand. Pollyanna, you know what? I'd like to tie her braids to the radiator. It's <laughs> really, really that she really did a lot of disservice to a lot of people. Yeah. No kidding. Oh my God, Chuck. It's been It's been a huge pleasure talking to you. I think we figured it all out. I think we kind of did. (laughs) Right. Like, stuff you should know is that someone needs to figure out how to not be full. Yeah, sure. When you eat. (laughs) And you need to figure out how to nurture the good in your child whilst also encouraging them to explore what's bad, but creating a safety net of love and security. And if you're too easy on yourself, maybe be a little bit harder. And if you're too hard on yourself, be a little easier, right? Balance. Homeostasis. Dude, man, I knew talking to you would figure some shit out. I'm so stoked. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone knows Chuck from Stuff You Should Know. But I want you to check out his other podcast, Movie Crush, which I was on recently discussing one of my favorite movies of all time, Tootsie. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoy. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikador. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, 
and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. <laughs>